From the Hudson River Valley of New York, I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650. Read 650 celebrates writers and the spoken word five minutes and 650 words at a time. And today's show is Voices of Hope, true stories of resilience, recovery, and renewal. It's part of Carnegie Hall's Voices of Hope Festival, which examines the life-affirming power of music and the arts during times of crisis. And today we feature true personal stories from writers Fran Tunno, Kathleen McKitty Harris, and Sally Hoskin, all of whose stories relate to the practice of writing. The day I got the phone call from my bosses telling me I was furloughed, I cried. Then I finished writing the commercials I'd been assigned and tried thinking of it as a vacation. I wasn't laid off, just furloughed. It's hard to sit down and write on any given day, but even more so during a pandemic. I dug into my files and unearthed drafts of some 70 essays marked up years ago by writing group classmates, then spent the summer rewriting 50 of them. And on today's Between the Lines segment, Jennifer Schneiderman celebrates some publishing success despite her admittedly sloppy writing habits. I've always been a writer who rarely managed to get anything on the page. Then the pandemic emergency hit. I threw myself into a creative frenzy. That's all just ahead on Read 650. Today's show begins with Fran Tunno. Fran is a freelance writer, copywriter, award-winning blogger, voice actress, and mom, who, after decades living in Los Angeles, has now returned to her Pittsburgh roots and whose essay title is framed as a question. Grateful for COVID? Here's Fran Tunno. The day I got the phone call from my bosses telling me I was furloughed, I cried. Then I finished writing the commercials I'd been assigned and tried thinking of it as a vacation. I wasn't laid off, just furloughed. Surely our country would rebound once we knocked COVID out. Then March turned to April, May... June. And in July, I was furloughed for another three months. By then, I was running out of Netflix shows and started reworking a children's book I had hopes for. Chatting with a friend at that time, she said, why aren't you finishing that book you wrote about your mom all those years ago? I'd rewritten that book so many times over the past 30 years with my ex-husband's words on repeat in my head. No one's going to want to read your little stories. I hadn't even considered reviving it until that moment. It was another goal I regretted not achieving and what I saw as a less-than-stellar career. But I'd gotten one of the book's chapters published, which my ex did applaud, I'll give him that. So I thought, I should finish this. Once I started, I couldn't stop. I finally had time to give my book the meticulous attention and love it deserved. I thought, I'm 65 years old. If not now, when? I felt guilty being grateful for a pandemic when so many people were suffering. But I knew I'd never finish it as long as I had a full-time job. I have a great work ethic for my job and motherhood. Unfortunately, my dreams have always taken a backseat. But my kids couldn't visit, I couldn't serve Sunday dinners, and I had no one to bake for. So, tucked away in my apartment with my only daily mandate, a long walk, I kept making progress. 
Every day as I worked on my book, I understood my parents and their relationship a little better. I began looking at my mom as an equal because I'm now her age. I finally got her what-the-hell attitude and felt like her spirit was guiding my fingers as I typed. I pulled out old photos, laughed and cried. I called my brothers and sister and reminisced. I called cousins and learned things I never knew. I relived the exuberance and ugliness of the 60s. The assassinations, the Beatles, the music, and the civil rights marches. Watching the news in the summer of 2020 felt like one step forward, two steps back. But I was also reliving a great childhood, filled with delicious homemade ravioli bathed in tomato sauce, meats so tender they fell from the bone, delicious pizza on thick crust with pepperoni and melted mozzarella, and a garden full of fresh vegetables and fruit. I revisited my embarrassment, watching my Italian mom picking dandelions and mushrooms in our front yard, proving to the world in the swinging 60s that we were hunter-gatherers and were clearly so poor we had to eat weeds. My first editor gave detailed, insightful feedback, so I rewrote and added 50 pages. Then I sent it to another editor for more review. I rewrote again, adding a few more pages, and now I'm sending it to a third. COVID ended up striking my family, making my son, my two brothers, and numerous family friends ill. Thankfully, everyone survived, and the world seems a bit calmer now. I did lose my job in October, but hopefully I'll get another one, plus an agent and a publisher. But even if I don't, I enjoyed the most wonderful summer, baking with my mother, gardening with my father, popping sweet grapes in my mouth under the grape arbor, and confronting my biggest fear, that my ex might be right. But I moved forward anyway, finally giving my book and myself permission to soar. Frantano is truly grateful to have finally finished writing the book she started 35 years ago about her hunter-gatherer Italian upbringing in western Pennsylvania in the swinging 60s. Kathleen McKitty Harris is a fifth-generation native New Yorker whose work has appeared in Long Reads, Craft Literary, Creative Nonfiction, McSweeney's, and The Rumpus, among others. Here she is with Zooming Through It. It's hard to sit down and write on any given day, but even more so during a pandemic. Yet a string of nine numbers served as the key to unlocking that discipline for me even during such difficult times. Those nine digits were a Zoom meeting code for an online writing group, one that somehow kept me at my keyboard each week and kept me working. As the coronavirus began to run rampant through the world last March, upending routines, lives, families, workplaces, and economies, a friend suggested that we form a weekly online writing group along with several of our literary comrades. We needed focus in the time of COVID, and we needed distraction for the very same reason. As the encroaching reality of isolation grew nearer, we realized that we needed to see each other's faces on the screen, even if for just an hour or two each week. 
Even more than creative output and word counts, we needed camaraderie and companionship. The premise was this. We'd write four or five pages each week, an essay for one, perhaps, a monologue for another, the beginnings of a chapter and a novel for a third, and log on at noon every Thursday to Zoom to share our stories and offer constructive feedback. At each meeting, we signed on a few minutes early to kibitz and check in with each other. We shared our home remedies for sleeplessness, our recipes for sourdough starters, our worries, and our anxieties. We shared news about who had tested positive for COVID and who, miraculously, had not. We shook our heads in disgust about presidential tantrums and science deniers. We complained about our circumstances and limitations and cried openly about what or who we were missing most that week. At every meeting, there were nods of compassion and words of strength emanating from each digitized rectangle. Then we'd read our work. Week after week, anywhere from three to six women would show up with several written pages. When I look back on that now, I can appreciate how Herculean that was. At the time, it felt like nothing more than a lifeline that each of us reached for hand over hand to get to the following week. Now, that effort feels miraculous. The writing didn't have to be spectacular. First drafts undoubtedly aren't. What was astonishing was that it appeared at all. Each week, the automated Zoom doorbell would ring and these ordinary, industrious women would show up again and again. There were times, of course, when we canceled class. We nixed it on the day after election day because everyone was still glued to news reports, unable to focus on much past Georgia and Pennsylvania's vote counts. We skipped most of January altogether because of the three successive Wednesdays that brought us insurrection and impeachment and inauguration. We recently canceled when one of our classmates got her second COVID vaccine shot and ran a fever. But we kept coming back. At times, we wrote about COVID, but more often than not, we wrote about other themes of loss. A sibling's death in a long-ago childhood, aging parents, abuse, estrangement, like mystic moments of birth and death, this time, too, opened a holy portal, and we entered it together. The nearness of the pandemic and the resulting vulnerability that bubbled up somehow enabled us to aim closer to the bone. COVID had left us with cracked open chests and festering wounds. The terrible beauty of that rawness enabled us to produce some of our most moving and honest pages— I don't know if the group will continue after the pandemic ends. What I do know is how grateful I am for the company of strong women during this strange, strange time, for their gifted words and their entirely human hearts, and for all that they can impossibly hold. Kathleen McKitty Harris's essay, A Timeline of Human Female Development, appears in the anthology My Body, My Words. She's performed as a storyteller on the Moth Podcast and co-hosts the What's Your Story live reading series in northern New Jersey, where she lives with her husband 
and two children. Sally G. Hoskins is a retired college biology professor formerly employed at City College of the City University of New York, where she developed the CREATE project, aimed at transforming the teaching and learning of biology through a focus on close reading of peer-reviewed research reports rather than textbooks. And her contribution to our special Carnegie Hall Voices of Hope Festival event is called Not As Expected, How Writing My First Book Got Me Through the Pandemic. Here's Sally Hoskins. As a biologist, my initial reaction to the pandemic was, science will get us out of this, followed closely by, people will soon understand and respect laboratory research much more. I was half right. I'm a retired college professor living in a tiny cottage in Putnam County, where last summer I coped by trying to grow flowers from seed, taking long walks, and catching up on sitcoms I missed during graduate school. In a June phone session with my longtime psychiatrist, I rambled, again, about someday compiling the essays I'd produced in recreational writing classes into a book. This time, she said, why not self-publish? Feeling unmoored that day, I heard the suggestion as a command. I dug into my files and unearthed drafts of some 70 essays marked up years ago by writing group classmates, then spent the summer rewriting 50 of them, appreciative of every praised turn of phrase, correction of misused semicolons, or marginal LMAO. By September, I had a complete draft of the book, though I learned that, as with grant proposals for the National Science Foundation, you're not done when it's written. Grants need budget justifications, facility statements, and bio-sketches. A self-published book involves decisions on issues I'd never considered. Dimensions, fonts, drop caps, headers, and paper stock. The only easy part was the title, Not As Expected. The box I'd checked on more than one Land's End Reason for Return form. It was an all-purpose excuse for rejecting something without having to explain how your expectations misaligned with reality. The title essay focused on the year I became an instant single mother to my orphaned teenage niece. For her, it was time to rebel against non-existent parents. I, in contrast, was thinking, daughter I never had, or at least Gilmore Galpal. Hijinks ensued. I chose a book publishing crew from Ohio since I'm originally a Midwesterner. Their guidance helped until we got to cover design, another not as expected experience. They proposed taking that chore off my hands for $500. Uh, no. I would do my own cover. It looked easier than parenting. I plucked a pink zinnia I'd personally germinated photographed it emerging from an eggshell, then mastered a minimal in-design skill set. Even though it took me half a day to figure out how to draw a frame around the photo, doing everything myself was undeniably satisfying. I first sent the finished compilation to very close friends, a super supportive fan base. Then I expanded to a wider circle, former teachers, an ex, several once-dear but now distant friends. I dithered over sending a copy to a revered senior colleague as we'd had a bumpy three-decade relationship. 
Finally, however, I mailed it, then panicked on the way home from the post office. A week later, I received an email from her with high praise and thanks for the guffaws. She also recounted a heartfelt tale of fraught interactions with a teenager who unexpectedly joined her household, which she reflected on after reading my version. Her sincere, revealing email was heartening. I was glad I had taken the risk. I've been okay during the pandemic because I'm a hermit at heart and because my retirement preceded Zoom's takeover of academia. Even as I have turned inward, though, my book has allowed me to reveal myself in a candid and meaningful way. My essays range from ruminating on why the world of Thomas the Tank Engine is 95% male, or wondering whether I could get rich quick by following the well-established formula for writing romantic, summer-on-Nantucket, chiclet, to pieces about coping with chronic illness. One essay reveals a close call with suicidal ideation. In conversation, I'm not sure I would have ever gone there, even with old friends. Writing made it easier. My readers' wide-ranging reactions have been not as expected, different than expected, often deeper than expected. We're closer now, and I've learned to expect more of myself. Sally Hoskins founded and conducted She, S-H-E, a woman's vocal ensemble that gave free concerts and raised funds for New York City-based charitable organizations through voluntary donations. Her essays have appeared in the New York Times, Newsweek, and Science, as well as in anthologies from the Visible Inc. Project and Read 650. The stories you're hearing today, along with many others, are available in book and ebook form. It's just one of dozens of themed collections that we've published, and they help fund our mission to promote writers. They're great gifts and perfect bedtime reading. And you can view all of our themed anthologies, including Siblings, Back to High School, Tales of New York, and many others, under the Shop tab on our website, read650.org. Our executive producer is Richard Kolath. I'm your host and Read 650's founder and executive editor. Our editorial team includes Stephen Lewis, David Masello, Lisa Donati-Meyer, Karen Dukes, and Shelley Sadler-Kenny. And our show was produced with assistance from Jim Russick and Sarah Caldwell. We'll be back after a short break. I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650. Support for Read 650 comes from Carnegie Hall in New York City, whose mission is to present extraordinary music and musicians on its three stages. Carnegie Hall brings the transformative power of music to the widest possible audience, provides visionary education programs, and fosters the future of music through the cultivation of new works, artists, and audiences. Ignite passion. Embrace joy. For more information and event schedules, visit carnegiehall.org. Jennifer Schneiderman is a writer and a licensed clinical social worker living in Los Angeles. Despite, or because of, her admittedly sloppy habits, her work has appeared in many, many literary journals, including The Rubber Top Review, Writers Resist, Montana Mouthful, The Daily Drunk, and Angel City Review. For this edition of Between the Lines, Jennifer reads her essay, Camels Don't Have Hooves, Confessions of a Sloppy Writer. I've always been a writer who rarely managed to get anything on the page. 
Then the pandemic emergency hit. In my efforts to busy myself in quarantine, I threw myself into a creative frenzy. I got a submittable account and figured out how to enter duotrope data. I discovered six-word and 50-word stories. I penned flash prose and hybrid poems and rose to many an ekphrastic challenge. I chose a pen name and, dead set on becoming the next Shirley Jackson, I created a horror genre Twitter account. During this pandemic-inspired writing storm, I became aware that my attention to detail is, well, wanting. I'm not talking your typical typo. In one of my favorite poems, three out of the first four lines had misspelled proper names or incorrect punctuation. My deepest apologies to Cindy Lauper, Echo and the Bunnymen, and the Psychedelic Furs. In another instance, I dramatically ended a piece with the words, Camel hooves. Camels have feet. Further, sometimes there were extra blank pages for the editor's reading enjoyment. In another case, I forgot the word doc attachment, but generously included a YouTube instructional video on manuscript formatting. I've emailed prose editors about poetry and poetry editors about prose. It didn't help that I had never heard of Times New Roman, and I'm sure many readers enjoyed my penchant for 18-point Helvetica Noye. If instructed to exclude identifying information from a document, I might have let the cat out of the bag. Finally, there was the rather disastrous foray into erasure poetry. I didn't include the original document, So what I submitted was just a weird poem with weirder spacing. Well-deserved crickets from the editor on that one. Yet, somehow in this deluge of errors, I managed to submit enough pristine material to have 17 poems and 12 pieces of prose published. To my relief, I am not alone in the transgression department. I just received a rejection notice for a piece that a review already published a year ago. Another journal misspelled the title of their own publication. I'm still proud of my honorable mention in their poetry contest. We all make mistakes, but it's my job to double down and make sure I do my best not to make them. Wait, is there a hyphen in double down? Let me double check. Jennifer Schneiderman says her greatest inspirations are Anne Lamott and Edward Gorey. She and her emergency room physician husband are looking very forward to coming out of quarantine. Between the Lines is a regular feature of our show and a place we invite writers of all genres to contribute their thoughts on writing and the writing life. To share your observations, click the Submissions tab on our website, read650.org, where you will also find open submission calls for our upcoming shows. Read 650 is a nonprofit literary organization with a mission to promote writers with this forum for true personal stories told five minutes and 650 words at a time. Thank you again to writers Fran Tunno, Kathleen McKitty-Harris, Sally Hoskins, and Jennifer Schneiderman. If you like what you heard today, please consider a donation to support our mission to promote writers. Please tell your friends about us and help spread the word about the spoken word. 
This episode of Read 650 was part of Carnegie Hall's very first all-digital festival, Voices of Hope, exploring the life-affirming power of music and the arts. With streamed performances that range from orchestral and chamber works to folk and jazz, Voices of Hope features music that inspires change and lifts the human spirit. For complete festival details and event schedules, visit carnegiehall.org slash voicesofhope. For more Read 650, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or at read650.org. Thanks for listening. I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650.